and welcome to the latest episode of That's Gross, unless you're into it. I am your host, Miss Kay Chalice, and if you've been following the podcast pages, um, I've actually been moving into a new house with my partners the past few days, and I am fucking knackered after carrying boxes and dressers up a three-story house. Fortunately, with all that tiredness comes some payoff because I am just silly enough to be focused on what we're having a chat about today, and... The subject of this episode tends to squick people out a bit, play involving bodily fluids, and I ask that you keep an open mind and not kink shame, as always, as these things are surprisingly common, and honestly, it's such a massive and wide-sprawling kink in terms of uh, cerulophilia or paraphilia that we're going to just be covering a couple of topics kind of within this realm, and I'm going to split up the rest into other episodes in the future. So let's go ahead and get started with kind of the heavy hitter that people make the biggest face about, which is blood play. So blood play, which is more scientifically fancy-dancy known as uh, hematophilia, it's a general term for the sexual arousal that you get at the presence of blood. Um, usually involves like bloodletting, uh, cutting someone, kind of the same thing, and occasionally blood drinking, uh, which is where the idea that it's a vampire fetish comes from. I personally tend not to use that phrase because it just seems like a total cringe fest twilight thing to me and I just can't handle it. It is a form of edge play, which is sort of like an umbrella term for any type of play that involves pushing yourself or your play partner to the edge of what's considered safe, sane, and consensual, which already sounds kind of scary. Totally not, because the whole point of it is that you are being safe, sane, and consensual. But with things like this, it starts rolling over like a big fat cat into the realm of what's actually known as RAC, which is an acronym for Risk-Aware Consensual Kink. That means that you and your partners have sat down and had a talk and went, huh, well I guess we're both delightly fucked in the head, so why don't we be smart and safe and we'll fuck each other up together? And they say romance is dead. But all jokes aside, with things like edge play, you still want to make sure that you're following the general rules of safe, sane, and, of course, like consensual. As a basic rule of thumb, when you think safe and sane, then generally you want to go by the guidelines of a lot of other things, like don't drink, use, don't use any illicit substances. Not that I would know what illicit substances do. Hi, Mom! For anyone who likes to get stoned or anything like that, more power to you. I am not telling you to not do any of these things because it's your body. You're going to do what you want. But overall, concerning play, it's best to have a clear ahead as you can get during the activities. You might be like totally shrugging this off and thinking that I'm being lame as fuck and that I'm a total square. But regardless of how great those activities are and how fun they can be, they aren't going to be as fun if you're a little too slow (laughs) to react if something happens to you or your partner. It can pose a problem. Honestly, this podcast should be called That's Gross, and that's why I'm going to scare the shit out of you. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. That would be way too long of a title. And we're back on track. People confuse the idea that knife play and bloodletting, like blood play, are the same thing. Um, they're similar and kind of fit within the same realm of let's do shit with sharp things, summer camp, but they're two distinctly different types of play. Knife play generally involves the threat of being cut or the sensation of skin being scraped, but generally doesn't leave any marks, 
cut through any of the seven layers of skin, at least enough to draw blood. Blood play, on the other hand, involves cutting through all seven layers of skin that you need to get through in order to draw blood. Uh, so as you can imagine with that, it can get a little bit messy and a lotl dangerous. A lotl. <laughs> Our bodies are these amazingly cool mechanisms that act as like hyper defense fortresses at all times. That's why we're not sick fucking constantly. It can handle a lot, but blood, kind of unsurprisingly, is one of those things that our own bodies can't defend against, especially when it's someone else's. If you're planning on ingesting your partner's blood, if you are someone listening to this that is totally interested in blood play, um, if you're going to be ingesting your partner's blood, you are more at risk than the person that the blood is being let from. I can't tell you how to play or how to find your blood play bestie, but I'm going to just kind of make a face and advise that much like any other form of risky play, it's best for you to know what your partner's status is. Like, along with a whole host of other bloodborne pathogens and diseases, you run the risk, especially with blood of HIV and various forms of hepatitis, by ingesting blood or allowing someone's blood access to your system at all. So it's not going to be the sexiest chat in the world, but if you're going to be engaging with this in someone, you need to be able to trust them. So if you do trust someone, it's going to be a lot easier for you to say, hey, have you been tested recently? Or, you know, could I ask what your status is? Do you have any blood paperwork of, of a time when you've been to a clinic recently? No, it's not going to be terribly hot. And you know what? If they haven't been tested recently, or even if you haven't, then it's surprisingly intimate to be able to say, hey, I really want to do this with you, but before we get into this, do you want to go get tested with me? And there are plenty of clinics, I'm sure, in your local area that do these testing, either at a super low cost or free. It's going to be an interesting conversation, but it's going to be one that is going to be best for the both of you in terms of making sure that everyone's safe and we're not all swapping a whole bunch of stuff that's going to make a lot of people sick. And as with any other form of heavy kink, generally go by the rule of if you're going to do dumb shit, be smart about how you go about doing it. And I think that's especially the case with blood play. So if you have no experience with blood play, I always advise trying to find a workshop to go where that you can learn from someone who has been doing it for a long time. Uh, it's a really intimate form of play and it requires, like I said before, a lot of trust. I mean, you're, you're pretty much toying and making sexual play out of someone's life force, uh, to put it bluntly, like a very silly hippie. So every precaution should be taken. There are plenty of workshops. If you are on FetLife or any other fetish message board or anything like that, there are usually uh, plenty of places where you can find local workshops of people that are interested in the same fetishes as you, and they can work through it step by step. People that have been doing this for years and years. It can work wonders, and I highly, totally advise it. If you manage to come across someone who is not experienced or just says that they're a total master and that they'll totally do blood play with you, and they tell you things like safe words aren't necessary, they know what you need, or I know when to stop, or they're just generally kind of ass about how you want to be treated when you're kind of negotiating how things are going to work in your scene, then they're a twat and you should run away really fast. <laughs> and speaking of exactly that, make sure with this kind of play that you have a safe word. I can't put to you enough how important it is in 
any form of BDSM that you have a safe word. If you're in the middle of play, especially with something sharp, especially if something is being done to hurt your body, um, or even if you're just not feeling right, or you're uncomfortable, something hurts in the wrong way, or if your partner is just giving you a bad feeling, don't feel bad about using your safe word. It's there for a reason, especially with something this intense involving your body being marked. You deserve complete control over the situation, even if you're in a submissive role. It's amazing to me how many people believe that doms are actually in control when, for the most part, it's submissives giving themselves over, but ultimately having the control over the scenario. And that's exactly how it should be treated, especially when the submissive is the one being marked or hurt. General rules to follow. Uh, knives and scalpels aren't fucking toys. Uh, hopefully this goes without saying. Uh, knife play can involve a whole myriad of different kinds of knives or sharp objects. But scalpels are generally the best choice uh, I've found in terms of drawing blood. Uh, I tend to prefer a number 10 or a number 11 uh, surgical scalpel. They're not very long. They can make small, precise cuts and are usually very, very clean. Um, never, ever ever reuse these instruments. Don't boil them like you would a lot of other sex toys and uh, instruments as they do warp and they will end up doing way more harm than good. Uh, always go and get a multi-pack of pre-sterilized sealed scalpels. You can get them on any medical supply website and I advise that for basically any kind of blood play or medical play uh, as it has to be said as they're all going to be sterile. And I prefer scalpels in particular because Here's the thing, you don't need massive cuts to create a really pretty bloody canvas. Small cuts do just fine. It is less about the size of the cut and more about the depth of it. You don't want to go too deep because that's going to cause permanent damage. You don't want to go too light because then you will not be cutting through all seven layers of the skin. It takes a lot of practice. You just have to be able to get enough pressure, even just through a small incision, to get some blood going. Uh, I highly advise looking up the Langer lines of skin tension and follow that as a general rule of thumb. Like cutting along any of those lines, along any of those areas, is not going to cause as much of a gape and heals a lot faster and leaves a lot less scarring if that's of your concern. But honestly, if you're into a lot of blood play, knife play, things like that, scarring is going to be less of a concern because you're uh, you're totally getting off to the idea of someone making you, cutting you open, making you bleed. But that's neither here nor there. If you are engaging with blood play with your partner, the best things to have on hand are, I mean, everything that you want to have around for just a deep cut on your everyday life, basically. I have band-aids, butterfly bandages. I prefer getting Steri-Strips because they can close up a wound uh, really easily. Antibiotic ointment, alcohol, and some cotton balls. Make sure your partner's sterilized before you go into cutting and all of this stuff. And you can make it part of the game. You can make it, make it part of a role play, the sterilization process, or if you just want it to be quick and done, uh, it's actually super easy to have your submissive or play partner go and take a shower, clean all over with antibiotic soap that you can get at any drugstore, and you can even use uh, some alcohol afterwards. Lastly, I think the most important part here is knowing where to cut. There are such things in blood play and knife play called the no-go zones. That's what I call them because it's more fun. And these are the places on the body 
that while they seem like really beautiful, supple places to make marts on your lovely, dear heart, anatomical fuck boo, they're all areas that are chock full of either subcutaneous fat and or like major venous vessels and arteries. If you nick one of these, you're going to have a bad time. But you know what? Every body is different. Every person's body is different. So it's best to know your partner's body well as a general and have a general understanding of human anatomy. But as a very basic layout, my no-go zones always tend to include uh, the spinal area, the belly, wrists, ankles, feet, neck, face, uh, top of the head, backs of the knees, and the shins. Um, a lot of these especially close to the spine, that's just a very scary part that you want to cut. You don't want to cut someone at the back of their knees because there are a lot of heavy tendons there. The shins, it's going to suck if you get down to that bone. It's a lot of very bony areas, a lot of very venous areas, and those are just places that you don't want to fuck with. I know it seems like a lot to exclude, but please remember, there is a whole body that you get to play with. There are plenty of areas, um, I actually call some of them the caution zones. They're areas that are very fleshy. You want to make sure to be precise and very shallow in the depth at which you're drawing blood, just for the sake of comfort afterwards. And those are areas like the shoulders, the upper arms, biceps, uh, the breasts, back of the calves, and hands. So these are areas that might have a little bit more have a little bit more fat or muscle to them and are easily accessible, are not going to cause a lot of damage, but you don't really want to mess with them too much because it can be harmful, especially the breasts. And of course, there are the areas that are basically free reign, and those are going to be the more meaty areas, the top of the back, the top and the back of the thighs, um, the forearms, and the bum. When I say forearms, I do mean the top of the arms, not the bottom. Those are very, very veiny. But you know what? I do want to switch it up because I have a point to make. While we're on the topic of fucking involving blood, I'm going to bring up the big red elephant in the room. Period sex. Woo-woo. There are countless number of people who I have had talk to me about they really want to have sex on their period. And it's totally normal. It's healthy. And it's honestly even helpful to have sex on your period at some points. It's just another bodily function. It happens, it's natural, and it's normal. But yes, it is still blood. My point is, if you're squicked out by period sex, buck up, champ. <laughs> I know a lot of people are really, really grossed out by it. A lot of women feel very self-conscious about it. But it's something that your body has been doing for so long and it's perfectly normal it is just another function of your body just like discharge just like cum just like the wetness that you secrete it is just another fluid that your body secretes and it's totally fine the best thing that you can do like for the mess because i know that's a big issue for a lot of people have some period sheets i know i mentioned in the last episode on anal to have like anal sheets Make those your period sheets, too. Just get them really, really clean. Make, get some that you can bleach really well or get some that are exceptionally dark. And if you don't want to do that, put on a good dark towel. Just something that's going to soak up anything excess. That's really about it. And, I mean, the greatest part about period sex, are you worried you won't get wet enough? Do you like my commercial voice? Worried that you won't get wet enough? That's fine. Your Aunt Flo brought some from out of town, and it's organic. That's right. Blood makes excellent lubrication. It really is. It's perfectly fine because I know a lot of people tend to dry up a little bit more when they are on their period and that can be another point of feeling self-conscious. 
blood makes good lube. I know it sounds gross. I know that you are probably making a face at me saying that. Just trust me. Keep in mind that if you are fluid bonded to your partner, as in you have unprotected sex and are swapping bodily fluids, while it's rare, it is still possible for pregnancy to occur during period sex. Semen can stay inside your body for anywhere to two to five days. So if it's still there when your period has stopped and your ovulation cycle begins again, you do run that risk. Again, it's super, super rare as cunts are basically rigged for kill all invaders. And having your period is more or less the equivalent of inviting that one shitty person from work over after the Christmas party is already over. But it can still happen. Um, and that's just a precaution that you need to go in knowing. A lot of people are going to boo-boo me for this. Eating your partner's cunt when they are on their period is perfectly acceptable. Bear with me. But trust me when I say it, as someone whose partner eats her cunt like a turkey dinner, even when she's bleeding, it is a godsend. Because really, realistically, period sex or period oral sex can help relieve menstrual cramps, headaches, and can assist with mood swings. Orgasms are wonderful, wonderful things that can do magical things for all of these. Other than that, remember that it's going to get messy. Generally, position kind of helps a bit, lying on your back, on missionary, or laying on your side. But just remember, you are putting a dick into your cunt, that blood is gonna go somewhere. If you are not wearing a condom, that cum is going to go somewhere. What goes up must come down. Gravity cannot be defeated by cum. But now for something completely different. Let's talk about piss play. So after that whole talk about blood play and period sex, here's the weird part. For all the risk that comes with playing with various bodily fluids compared to how much absolute shit and kink shaming that piss play as a fetish is given, it's probably one of the safest and most harm-free forms of fluid play that there is, at least like on a physical and physiological scale. I mean, urine is completely sterile. The one thing that you really need to look out for uh, is your diet and medications that have been taken because what you do put in your body will come out. So be careful what you or your partner are taking if you are partaking in, say, piss drinking. The, one of the number one things that I can say for uh, any sort of water sports, which is another term for piss play, is whether you are the person being peed on or the person peeing on someone, make sure you're hydrated. If you are peeing on your partner, oh, do them, give them the gift. And I, I, I literally mean this. Give them the gift of hydrated pee. If you are eating absolute shit all the time and you're only drinking soda and coffee and energy drinks and things like that, and you are not drinking a lot of water, your piss is going to smell like absolute garbage. And nobody wants that on them. Even though somebody who is really, really into piss play is not going to want somebody who is peeing garbage onto them. I can't think of a better way to put that. So please make sure you're drinking lots of water. If you haven't had a lot of water throughout the day, just drink as much as you can about an hour before you plan on engaging in that particular activity. And if you are the person being peed on, and especially if you plan on piss drinking or doing the uh, human urinal kink, 
be hydrated beforehand. If you are drinking urine, it can make you even more dehydrated because urine contains a lot of mineral deposits as well as sodium, which completely drain out. The more you dilute urine, the less hydration you're going to actually receive from it. So you need to be really, really careful and drink enough water yourself. But on that note, also do not use diuretics. Diuretics are the little water pills that you hear about that you can take and they make you pee out all of the excess quote unquote water weight that you have. Those are not healthy because again, if you're going to be peeing on someone, then it is going to come out. And really, you want to try and get as little unnatural content in your urine as possible just for the safety of your partner. As far as the diet part, because I know I mentioned that, steer clear just for a couple days maybe of like high protein. Any of the foods that you've generally heard that make your cum taste bad are going to also make your piss smell or taste horrible. All of these things can affect how much it's going to be fun for your partner to engage in this activity too. Because as much as you might have a good time peeing on somebody, they're going to be sitting there going, oh, I really wanted to do this, but their pee really stings really fucking bad. Why does it smell like garbage? And that's going to ruin the whole scene. You don't want to do that. Please drink water and eat fruit, people. It's not hard. And last but not least, if you do plan on taking it to a more medical play side of things and using something like a catheter, one, again, make sure that you get all of your supplies from a medical supply store and that they are pre-sterilized. You do not want to use any just thing that you found I don't, or like bought from some random stranger. All I can picture now is somebody selling a catheter on Craigslist. Oh, no. And one last thing as far as peeing on your partner, to, just to make it more enjoyable for them and to help get rid of some of the uh, deposits that do start coming out immediately when you start urinating, start at first, give it about a second, and then use the stream to hit them because that will get rid of some of the backup that your bladder does supply at the beginning of your stream. Getting into piss play. If this is something that you and your partner have discussed, and like any other kink, you want to make sure to talk to them about it. We've talked about this several times on other episodes. Broach it in the best way possible. If it's something they are interested in, but they're feeling a little bit nervous about it, I mean, why wouldn't you? As if, <laughs> if somebody wanted to pee on you out of nowhere, I'm sure it wouldn't be the most pleasant thing in the world. But let me tell you that it is, and I'm going to tell you how to do it so that it's fun. Just start slow. Like any other kink, you don't always want to jump in head fucking first. Start with something simple as allowing your partner to see you urinating. We we live in a very uh, open door. We, being me and my partners, live in a very open door household. Uh, we've all seen each other pee like a million times. So in engaging in that kink with one of my partners is not the most surprising thing in the world because I know what's coming. That's a good start. Make it so that your partner is comfortable with the idea of you urinating because that is already one hurdle mentally that is sometimes hard for people to get over. The next step I would say is everybody pees in the shower. If you say you don't pee in the shower, you're a fucking liar. So try having a shower with them. Invite them into the shower with you and try urinating on their leg, on their foot, somewhere where they can feel it, they can realize it, it blends a little bit with the water and they are able to wash it off afterwards. It's a good way to haha, test the water. <laughs> Once they have a little bit more comfort with the idea or if it's something that's actually turning them on, 
have them lie in the tub with no other water going and try urinating on their stomach. Sometimes alone, if somebody's really into piss play, this can be enough to make someone come at all. Um, after that, help clean them up and get to fucking. Or don't, because play is just as fun even if you don't fuck afterwards. But as far as comfort, just be in a warm environment. God, I cannot tell you how awful it is. Uh, just being wet in a cold room. Do you want to do that to your partner? I really don't think you do, especially when they were awesome enough to let you piss on them. Let's not let's let's not sully that. Let's not sully that trust. Let's let's give them a nice warm room. And as far as cleanup, yes, it's going to be messy. Nobody wants to get pee everywhere. Um, do it in the bath. Do it in the shower. Or if you start getting a little bit more adventurous, or if you have a dungeon or a play space or something like that, um, get a kiddie pool. It sounds ridiculous, but you can get a kiddie pool. You can also get plastic or rubber sheets. Something that's really super easy to just ball up, clean up, and wash. But that's really about it. Otherwise, urine is wonderfully sterile. And... It's getting over the mental hurdle of it more than anything else. Piss play gets a bad rap, but I'll tell you, it's a hell of a lot of fun once you really, really get into it. Just keep an open mind. I think that's, that's it for episode four. Um, thank you everyone again for listening. I'm so excited with how quickly this has been growing and how many people are starting to follow the podcast. And I really appreciate all of the wonderful feedback that you've given me. I did ask for next week that I am going to be doing a Q&A session. So if you have any questions, whether it's about me, whether it's about sex work, whether it's about how to talk to sex workers, or if there is something that you just need some advice about in your own personal life, sex life, relationship, etc. I am super excited to answer them all next week. I've already gotten some amazing ones in. I left the anonymous inbox on our Facebook page at That's Gross Podcast. And you can also email any questions that you have to me at misskchalice at gmail.com. I'm going to, again, leave this in the podcast notes. I say that every week and I'm, I'm pretty sure you guys get it by now. And I am so excited to get to chat with any of you who decide to message me this week. And that's going to be it. Have great sex, do weird shit, be safe, and whenever possible, pay for your porn.